Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 12. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers that unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through grace, through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Let's pray again. Father, this is your word, and we pray that you would uh, break it for us as it is the bread of life and feed us with it, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is, we've read several texts, actually, and the one in 1 Corinthians 15 and now this one. The highlight for us, the truth of the gospel. And I believe that's a good way, a good phrase to use because that is certainly the heart of what's happening in chapter 15 of Acts. And exact, it's exactly the words Paul uses in Galatians 2 to describe uh, what is happening here in Acts 15. The truth of the gospel. The good news of God. The truth of the good news. This foundational truth, the core truth of the good news of what God has done through Christ and given to us and what we have received by grace alone through faith. There were no works or doings of man that moved God to have compassion on him. God, with his own, by his own free action and free will, through the grace and love of God, did what he did. No works, no things that men did brought Jesus to earth. We know that. It was totally of grace. There were no works of any of us in this room which brought salvation into our hearts and minds either. It was totally by grace. The truth of the gospel is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself and it is by grace plus nothing. We talk about that a lot here because it's very important. Grace plus nothing. 
It's been the cry of the church since Jesus was on earth, and it's still the same today. It is the heart of the New Testament. And it ought to be the heart of everything we do and preach and say. I think it's always important. I never know. Every week, every time we are gathered, somebody needs to hear that God will save you no matter what you've done in your past. He will save you not because he sees anything in your future, not because he sees you making good decisions. He'll save you because of grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ because that's what the gospel does. God has decided that through this gospel of his son, he will bring his people to faith. And that's what the gospel has done for us. It didn't declare us innocent. It declared us guilty, but free in Christ, forgiven in Christ. And the idea of this grace is at the heart of salvation. It's a battle that still rages. Satan wants people to be confused about salvation, and people are confused about it. There are so many grace plus doctrines out there grace plus churches out there grace plus whatever you want to add whether it's the sacraments or grace plus good deeds or grace plus baptism or grace plus church membership all these things there's no such idea in scripture as paul says very clearly in romans eleven six, if it is by grace then it's no longer by works otherwise grace will no longer be grace why I believe the doctrine of election and sovereignty are so essential so essential for us to believe that repentance and even our belief and faith is not by works all that comes from God right Spurgeon said if you put the two truths together that the love of God is first and that the love of God is the cause of our love then I think you'll be inclined to believe what we commonly call the doctrines of grace because we believe that everything is from God. So if God is calling you to salvation, don't hear some impossible things you have to do. Well, I can't come to Christ because I got to do this and I can't do that. I got to be this way and I can't be that way. No, what God is calling you to is Christ and he is sufficient. You must believe him. As he said in John 6, all the Father sends to me will come to me and I will know I cast them out, but will raise them up in the last day. So even if you're thinking, I can't be saved or I've done bad things, God can't save me. I can't live this life. All those, think, all those thoughts are correct. You can't. None of us can live the life that God's called us to. That's why God just calls us in the gospel to his son, not to a lifestyle. You come to Christ, and by the grace of God that saves you, that same grace will give you what else God wants for you to have, the love for his law and the love for his word and the love for his will. That very idea was being challenged. It always has been. I said Satan loves to mix up salvation. He's done that from the beginning. He mixed it up in the garden, and he's continued to mix it up all the way down through the ages. And even in the New Testament church, as it was growing and, man, the word was spreading and the church was spreading. 
certain Jews among those believers, and we could argue were these real believers or not, I don't know, the Bible doesn't say, but there are certain Jews finding it difficult to let the Gentiles in for free. We can't just let them be saved. They've got to also keep the law of Moses. They've got to be circumcised. And I think part of this was the Jews coming to faith in Christ, they understood Jesus as the Messiah, obviously, but they understood that he was the fulfillment of Judaism in some way. But they failed to understand that Christianity, though it was the fulfillment of all the prophets and the prophecies and all that Moses taught, it was still new. It is something new. The Gentiles didn't have to become Jewish to be converts. They didn't have to keep the law. They didn't have to keep the old covenant of circumcision. I find it interesting they were okay that the Gentiles were being saved. They got past that. And they understood possibly that was God's plan all along. But they had difficulty with them just waltzing in and not becoming what they wanted them to be first. And so they added things to it. Well, God can save us because we're his people, we're the Jews. But he can't save them the same way. There's got to be a different way. They've got to become like us and then become Christian or become Christian and then become like us. It was a grace plus thing. And so we get to this passage. Paul and Barnabas have been facing this. And I love the way the Bible puts it out. They had they no small dissension among the people because people were saying, hey, this is great. God's saving the Gentiles too. Now let's get them to be Jewish. And then they'll be complete. And, and that's something so important for us to remember. There is nothing, nothing on top of the gospel to be complete. When God saves you, you have everything. There's, not, there's nothing left. You get it all. But it says they had no small dissension. They were really upset, in other words. That word has very strong meaning at other times. used like uh, for riots. I mean, this discussion was very heated. Paul and Barnabas were very serious about this. And so they are even sent back to Jerusalem for this, we call it the Jerusalem Council, to get to the truth of the gospel. And so in verse 4, Paul and Barnabas, they show up at this meeting of apostles and disciples and church leaders because they were sent there by the church of Antioch. And Paul, already being respected, he's called upon to discuss the truth of the gospel. The doctrine of salvation is at stake. And so what does he do? He reports all the things that God has been doing. You may remember his first sermon back in Acts 13. That's what he did there. He preached. He just recounted the history of God among his people. 
And so he's given the opportunity to say, hey, what's been going on where you are? And what Paul does is he talks about God. So I'll tell you what's been going on. God's been saving his people through the gospel. And we have to remember that. That is the point of the gospel. First and foremost, it is about God. It's all about God. In a world full of man-centered preaching, we need to constantly be reminded what everything is about is Him, right? And His glory. Our preaching ought to be about Him. Heaven is about Him. Salvation is about Him. We were made for Him. Everything was made by Him, through Him. Right? Everything. And so this remains Paul's M.O. He points out that this is the gospel of God. It's what Paul is always about. He uses this phrase in different ways throughout Romans, for example, the gospel of his son, the gospel of Christ, and even calls it the gospel of God. Seventy-three times in Paul's writings, he uses the word gospel, refers to it. That's what he's about. So what is it? Well, we read it a while ago, the heart of it, in 1 Corinthians 15. But gospel is good news, right? It's good news. That's literally what the word means. But as I've heard pointed out recently, to go a little further, it is news. And for something to be news, it means it has happened in the past, right? The news is not what's going to happen tomorrow. You tune into the news to see what's already happening, right? Or has happened. So the gospel is news. It's something that has taken place already. It's not something that has potential. It's something that is complete. See, that's the way somebody has described the law. The law has potential. You can obey it or disobey it. The gospel is not potential. It is complete. It is news. It's happened. Right? It's good because God has done it, and it's from God, and only God is good. So man had nothing to do with it. And the gospel is something that is complete. We say it this way, the gospel is done, right? The law says do, the gospel says done. And I know I've said this often, and I'll say it again. The gospel is not a proposition for you to consider. It's a command for you to believe. And you can't believe it apart from grace. We've turned it into a proposition. Hey, here's some good news. Wouldn't you want to consider this over the bad news that you're going to hell? Weigh out those options. No, the Bible is just a command in the gospel. This is the good news. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Believe this and live. Believe this and have eternal life. You don't have to reject it to be condemned, right? Jesus is very clear. You're condemned already. So it's not a choice. Don't want condemnation or salvation. You're already condemned. So the gospel comes to us as good news. News to be received and believed. That's why John 1 11 points this out. As many, uh, maybe verse 12, as many as believed in him, he gave them the power to become the sons of God. As many as received him, and then he equates that with belief. To receive Christ is to believe. <clears throat> There's no list of steps. To believe is to receive. To receive is to believe. 
If you hear the gospel and you know it's true, believe it. That's a gift from God. It's a command of God that you believe in the one whom he has sent. And if you are the one the Father is bringing to the Son, you will believe it. We read that Psalm 110 earlier where it said, Thy people shall be willing in the day of thy power. God will convince his people to believe. Maybe that's some of you even now. God's convincing you to believe. Grace will overcome you and you will believe. The truth of the gospel begins with God. But if you continue in verse 8, the truth of the gospel is confirmed by God. He says, and God who knows the heart bore witness to them. This is what Paul is pointing out. Look, what he's really doing is he's demonstrating to these in attendance, hey, you want to know what God is doing with the Gentiles? Exactly what he did with each of you. He's not saving them some other way. You didn't get saved some other way. God who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. God confirms his gospel in, first of all, the hearts of his people. That center of who you are, that center of emotions, the seat of emotions, as the Jews would point out. That what makes us us, he changes us in our heart. Because salvation is a heart issue. And only God can look at the heart. Man looks on the outside, God looks at the heart. It's a mystery. We can't see it happening, we only see the evidences of it, right? Like Jesus said to Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. We don't really see the wind, but we can see the effects of it. And so it is with you. God, and with all of us, we can't point out, we didn't see God changing our heart. But as we learn in the Old Testament, what he did was took our cold, stony, sin-ridden heart and he put us like a new heart. He took that one out and gave us one that's pliable and no longer resists his word. A heart of flesh, the prophet called it. And then he also not only confirms it in our heart, but he confirms it to us by his spirit. The heart becomes pliable by the spirit through the word of God. As Paul points out in Ephesians 1, those who first trusted in Christ, they should be to the praise of his glory, in whom you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. That word sealed means what you think it would mean, but it also can mean to stamp or to mark. God marks his people. So if you're worried about how will I ever live this way, if I, if I surrender to this grace of Christ, because God will stamp you. He will mark you out. You'll find yourself uh, doing things you before didn't want to do and abstaining from things before you wanted to do. You won't find yourself in a state of perfect, perfection, but the Spirit of God will not allow you to rest because you've been marked by Him. Changed. It's what grieves us, by the way, when we do sin and we find ourselves in need of repentance. The Spirit of God in us will not rest and let us rest with sin. That's good news. 
Because in our flesh, we would. We would still roll around in it like a pig in the mud. We would love it. But the Spirit in us who has stamped us said, no, you won't. And thanks be to God for that. And finally, he points out the confirmation of the gospel through forgiveness. He said, God purified their hearts by faith. And obviously this purification, this word purified, connects closely to forgiveness because as John points out in his epistle, chapter 1, verse 9, we confess our sins and when we do, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. So our cleansing, I mean our forgiveness is always connected to cleansing. God not only forgives us our sin, but he makes us clean. Remember that story I just read to you in the persecuted church? The lady said that once God really gave her forgiveness, she opened her eyes and she just felt like a different person. Why? Because that was the cleansing part, the purifying. And I love when you look back at this list, how does God confirm the gospel in the heart, by the Spirit, through forgiveness? These are all things that we can't do. Again, we're not able to make any of this happen. God does it all. Then Peter stands up and begins to speak in verse 10. And he puts it in a different realm. Brethren, why tempt God? Why are you challenging God? And I really have that passage from Exodus 17 read because it's the same thing there. People were questioning God's provision. And Moses said to them, hey, don't tempt God. Don't test him. I didn't bring you into the wilderness. God did. But they kept forgetting that, right? And all the while, I love the way the New Testament points out that rock that followed them. That water that came forth from the rock, that wasn't water, that was Christ. It was God's provision, that perfect grace. And so here Peter's doing something that I, I think that probably those Jewish listeners would have been thinking about, oh, wait a minute, our people tempted God and tested him. Peter's telling us, why are you tempting God? Meaning to challenge him. Why are you challenging God that he can't save his people the way he wants to why are you deciding how people can be saved when God's already determined it's already happening and it literally means to put to test or challenge the feelings and the judgments and even the character of God who are you to challenge the character of God this is how God's determined to build his church and save his people Why would you challenge God's character of perfect saving grace by suggesting that works have a part, the man's work, the work of men have a part in this? When God God has gone to such great lengths to prove otherwise, who are you to challenge God? Because at the end of the day, if you do hold to or believe or teach that salvation comes by grace plus something, then what you are ultimately saying is that grace 
the grace of God is insufficient somewhere. It just wasn't enough. Even if, you're, even if you want to believe, well, but you have to choose this on your own. It has to involve your will. Your will has to be a part of it. What part of grace was insufficient? That God couldn't conquer your will and your poor decision making. And I think that's why Peter stands up and says, hey, wait a minute. Why are you putting God to the test? I mean, you're challenging grace. Because grace is sufficient. And I love how he goes on to say, besides that, you're putting a yoke of bondage on the neck of the disciples that we weren't able to bear and even our fathers weren't able to bear. They couldn't keep it. You couldn't keep it. Why are you expecting the Gentiles to keep it? We were talking about this a little in Sunday school this morning. Christ not only saves us and calls us to himself, but he gives us rest in himself. This is the beauty of Christianity, is resting in Christ, the comfort and the peace and the assurance. Somebody has pointed out very well, I believe, one of the things that the Reformation recovered so wonderfully well that we don't talk about a lot is assurance. Yeah, the doctrines of grace, we highlight that all the time. But one of the things the Reformers did so well, and thankfully that tradition has carried on, is this idea that salvation, when you put it in God's hands and take it out of man's, and you stop challenging and testing the character of God, and you recognize that salvation is nothing but an act of God, it brings assurance that can never be taken away. Because it no longer, it didn't depend on you to get it, It doesn't depend on you to keep it. And it will not depend on you in glory to finally uh, bring glorification to you. All of it belongs to him and it rests on him. And so it gives us assurance and rest. Because that's what grace does. It frees us from ourselves, from our sin, from the very law that condemns us. I heard this this week too. It's so good. Why do we keep going back to the law and wanting it to save It's the very thing that condemns us. Now, the law is good. It's not bad. But it has condemned us, clearly. So why would you go back to that which has brought condemnation and say, now save me? No, we run to Christ who has kept the law, and we say to him, save us from ourselves and from the law of condemnation. And then we see that the law is good. It's not a burden. Grace frees us from others' expectations of us. But also frees us to pursue God. It frees us to pursue righteousness. It gives us a desire for those things we didn't have before. It gives us a desire to pursue holiness. And it gives us a desire to pursue all the things that the law teaches us. In the Reformed world, we refer to this as the third usage of the law. That usage of the law which gives us the guide of how to live. We don't look to it for salvation. It can't save. What does the New Testament say? If it could save, then we wouldn't have needed anything else. But it can't save. 
It has not condemned us any longer. We're in Christ. So it doesn't condemn us. It condemns those who do not believe. But we do look to it because it gives us a guide of how to live now. The law in that respect is good. It teaches us how to live as Christians. The world can never look at the law and say, that's how I want to live. So Peter asks, why put this yoke around the disciples that neither of us or our fathers were able to bear? Again, I remind you what Jesus said in Matthew 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I think it's one of the greatest things that most of us as Christians for most of our lives have missed and some of us still do, and many still do, and that is just the rest that we have in Christ. He is our Sabbath. He's our rest. We don't have to work either to get it, and we don't have to even work to prove it. We rest in Christ because He is our all in all. By grace. It's a, it's a wonderful thing, and it's what we all need. I'll close with this story I read about Charles Spurgeon. Supposedly, there was another pastor in his town at the same time he was pastor named Joseph Parker. I think he was a Congregationalist. I'm not certain. But one day, Parker said something like how horrible the condition was of the orphans that Spurgeon was taking into his orphanage. Just a comment about their condition, their circumstances. Well, by the time the the word got back to Spurgeon, what Spurgeon heard was that Parker was condemning his orphanage, that his orphanage was a bad place. And so that Sunday, Spurgeon, as the story goes, got in his pulpit and blasted Parker. And so the following Sunday... A lot of people showed up because Spurgeon's comments were printed in the local paper and everybody read. So a lot of people showed up at Parker's church. They wanted to hear what he was going to say about Spurgeon. And the story goes that he stood up at the beginning of the service and said, I understand that Spurgeon is out of his pulpit this weekend. And this is the weekend that normally he would take up an offering for his orphanage. So I say we take up an offering in our church for his orphanage. And the story went, they had emptied the offering plate three times that morning. The people were so overwhelmed. In the middle of the week, Spurgeon showed up at Parker's office and uh, simply said to him, "Um, you didn't give me what I needed or deserved, but you gave me, you, you didn't give me what I deserved, but you gave me what I needed. And it was grace. Man, that's such a beautiful picture of what God has done for us through Christ. Not what we deserve, but what we need it. Not even what we wanted, but what we need it. So praise to him for that. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word and the truth of it, and especially for the gospel. And Lord, I know that the gospel never goes forth without uh, accomplishing what you send it to do because it's your word, and you've promised that it won't. It'll always accomplish what it's sent to accomplish. And so for your people this morning that you're beckoning to yourself, you're calling to yourself, I pray that they've heard the good news of the gospel 
and that they will believe in Christ and repent of their sins because you give them that desire and ability to do so. And they will be baptized and follow you and learn to rest in you. I pray you'd help us to teach our people here, the people that you give to us, they're your people, how to rest in Christ so that we're not constantly just under the attack of the enemy, thoughts about how insufficient we are and how horrible we are and how bad we are at being Christians because though that be the case for all of us, uh, our Savior is none of those things. And our hope is not in our abilities, our inabilities, our sufficiencies, but our hope is in Him. And by the testimony of your word and your gospel, you have changed us, given us a new mind toward Christ, a new heart. You took out the old one and replaced it. By your spirit, you have stamped us and given us forgiveness and mercy and purified us as if we had never sinned. Man, that gives us freedom and hope and rest and assurance. And I pray you'd help us now as we go into the part of worship where we get to taste and see that the Lord is good. Guys, we take the bread and drink the wine. I pray that you'll just solidify in our minds and hearts and souls that we belong to you, that we've been stamped by God himself and we belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.